clearly one of the mo most difficult parts of this for the church uh, would be uh, to understand the idea of lordship or even what God would means um, as far as uh, there is a authority that is bigger than you and that authority is something that actually requires your service and obedience. Uh, those are all very unpopular ideas uh, to a modern person. One of the fun things about being a sociologist is you can say, here's the issue, but I don't have a cure, right? Um, and this is what the data say, you know, you, you practitioners on the ground have to figure out how to make this work. Ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, podcast listeners of all ages, welcome to episode 46 of the Jolly Thoughts podcast. Today, I'm very pleased to be able to share with you a conversation with Dr. Sam Reimer. Sam is a uh, sociologist and a professor at Crandall University in Moncton, New Brunswick, Canada, my hometown, and he's been there for a, a dog's age. Well, I mean, maybe a couple of dog's ages stacked upon each other. Uh, and he's also recently released a book called Caught in the Current. You're going to hear about that mostly in our conversation. And it's an exploration about how people who live in Canada and or Britain slash the UK who consider themselves to be evangelical Christians, uh, how they think about the world. And uh, he has a very interesting thesis, which I will not steal. I'll allow him to be the one who shares that with you. But uh, this conversation and this book has been really eye-opening and helpful for me. And I hope that this conversation, and hey, if you pick it up, the book will also be eye-opening and helpful for you. So without any further ado, ladies and gentlemen, my conversation with Dr. Sam Reimer. Uh, okay, so uh, Notre Dame, so ca ca a good good Catholic school education then, uh, yeah. and also a good football football school education. Absolutely, still a fan, and we try to watch uh, football and some basketball and whatever else. But uh, yeah, a great education experience there, and a place where they um, think people who have faith aren't crazy, right? Which was a, a real plus. Sure. Very interesting. So you've been at Crandall now in Moncton, New Brunswick for the last 27 years. And uh, that's, a, that's a good run. That's a pretty solid, that's a pretty solid run at a single institution. Uh, always kind of, I mean, have you seen kind of what you've been teaching evolve quite a bit over those nearly three decades? Yeah, definitely. Um, some evolving, obviously, sociology is a topic that keeps changing with society. So you do need to upgrade uh, in those areas. But um, the students have changed some as far as what they're dealing with in their life. I mean, obviously, they're much more online and much more connected than they were in the past. And uh, so, um, yeah, uh, the way you connect with them is, is changing. And uh, also their headspace and even their mental health is changing. Right. Um, yeah, I, I think even right there, just saying how have students changed in the last 30 years, I think would probably be enough to fill up. Uh, a pretty decent conversation, but obviously seeing how not just they, but the world around them has changed is probably partially what drove you, I'm guessing, to write this book, which I think is is brilliantly titled. Did you come up with the title yourself? I have to defer to the McGill Queens editor who is helping me. She's delightful. And uh, we were going back and forth with topics, but she decided with the caught in the current 
um, title, which really I think is a good title and is a metaphor that I use in a few places in the book related to the way society. What, what I'm trying to get students to understand, Mark, is that society is just not it's, it's not like a pond where you can freely float in whatever direction your heart takes you. It's more like a river and it's pulling you in a certain direction. And unless you're a really good swimmer or you're somehow really sophisticated in understanding cultural influences, you're probably drifting with it. And that would definitely be true of the evangelical church as well. Yeah, that makes a great play on words. The idea that it's a current that's pulling you, but it's also it's the now, right? It's, it is the current. Um, you could also, I guess, go with maybe a third pun and say something like it's what's electrifying uh, you, partially, partially animating you at times, but that's where, that's where fun with language hangs out. So, I mean, you've maybe already alluded to it, but let's kind of hit the nail on the head. What led you uh, to kind of write this book in particular? Yeah. So, um, all the work that I, I mean, the center of the work that I've been doing for the last 27 years has all been in this evangelicalism and international evangelicalism. My first book was a comparison between Canada and U.S. evangelicals. And then we did a book on congregations, evangelical congregations. And now this um, book, I was interested in comparing Britain and in Canada, evangelicals for academic reasons, uh, largely to see their similarities and differences. But uh, as I started writing it, I began to realize that they are they're dealing with a lot of the same cultural influences and they are being reshaped by some of the same cultural influences influences. And so I was particularly intrigued instead of talking about their differences, I focused more on how they were being reshaped by a very powerful Western cultural influence uh, that was true on both sides of the, both sides of the Atlantic. So um, what was the, I mean, in a, in a moment, I'm going to ask you, well, what did you find when you started to, to pry into that but what was the methodology yeah. that you used to kind of get into into this topic right so um nor, most of my work mark tends to be quantitative and survey research kind of stuff uh but i decided the stuff that i was interested in here would require a little bit more depth of uh, prying into what was actually happening in the churches and what was actually happening you know in people's homes um so i decided on interviews and i did 124 or five interviews um, in about 65 different churches, more in England than in Canada, because I was much more familiar with the Canadian scene. Uh, and uh, the denominations that I were was looking at, I oversampled uh, Anglican, evangelical Anglican churches on both uh, fronts, because that's a really big chunk in England of the evangelicals, um, not as big here in Canada. And uh, I also was interested in some of the new uh, new network churches, not really denominations, but growing networks of churches that were uh, independent churches uh, springing up on both sides of the border. So um, I did that instead of some of the tr uh, typical traditional evangelical denominations. Um, but I think um, what I had to say in the in the book would be true across the board, since I did talk to, of course, people in, you know, Baptist and Nazarene and uh, and, uh, you know, sort of typical uh, evangelical denominations. So when you say uh, you did, you normally do quantitative stuff. So that's like, for lack of a better word, like survey data. So like in other words, yeah. like th things that you can kind of put in a spreadsheet and, and quantify. Uh, exactly. But then you also did kind of like more long form interviews. Would you call that, is that kind of what you're referring to as like kind of qualitative 
data? Yeah. Is that okay? That's qualitative data. That's dominantly what I did for this piece, though I checked out other people's um, survey uh, data, but um, okay. focused clearly on the interviews. That's the content of the book. Right. Um, interesting. And then you've bandied about the word evangelical a few times already. Uh, as you already mentioned in the book, it's there. There is, a, a, you know. Webster's Dictionary would define evangelical as, that's how so many sermons have started. Uh, I'm not sure if there actually is a solid uh, or universally agreed upon definition of it. You allude to a few of them in there. Um, what did you end up doing uh, to help you, I guess, kind of settle in on who you wanted to include in this in this qualitative research? Yeah, it's a good question, Mark, because I had, an, uh, I think at least, one of my anonymous reviewers, I'm pretty sure, was from the U.S. and uh, was critical of the fact that I used a theological um, definition as opposed to one uh, which is much more uh, political, as uh, a lot of the uh, views now of American evangelical are. It's more of a political movement than maybe a theological one. But that I didn't think worked very well for Britain and Canada. And so I stuck with uh, uh, Bevington's famous quadrilateral, which um, basically argues that evangelicals have sort of four characteristics, including activism. They're quite active in their faith, uh, crucicentrism, the centrality of the cross, uh, biblicism, the importance of the Bible, and uh, conversionism, the importance of a conversion experience. So but what helped me gathering the data was that I went to denominational leaders in different areas of both countries and said, tell me about which churches are particularly evangelical, which, of course, is important in an Anglican context. And so they pointed me to the churches that uh, were had a strong evangelical leader or or reputation. And so I went and did studies in those and almost Consistently, I found theologically and whatever other measure you wanted, uh, they were indeed evangelical. Okay, so they they were self disclosed uh, as that. And so, and and to use yeah. a Britishism, they they also were uh, what it said on the tin. So they they were described that way. But then once you got inside, it also happened to look like they they held those core values as well. Yeah, exactly. At least at least in the leadership would be true, and in their vision. Um, even if some people in their pews were not necessarily uh, evangelical. And I had a few interviews that I had to kind of move to the side because uh, it was clearly I wasn't talking to someone who had uh, fully imbibed, the, imbibed the, uh, the the church's doctrine. They hadn't drunk the Kool-Aid, as they say. Hadn't drunk the Kool-Aid, yeah. Yeah. Um, hopefully uh, they don't say that about us, but they probably do. It's actually interesting what they say about us, because that's kind of one of the first things that you noticed, even in the beginning of your book, as you're starting to unpack it, and you just mentioned it, that when you're speaking to uh, American quote-unquote evangelicals, so the people who who hold those four same core values that you described, versus evangelicals in uh, Canada or the US, or maybe other Commonwealth locations, um, sorry, Canada or the UK, uh, other Commonwealth locations, there's uh, obviously commonality, but there's also some like dissimilarity. And one of the things seems to be that uh, the UK and Canadians in particular kind of have a reticence to be associated with the term evangelical if it happens to be associated with American evangelicalism. Um, what sorts of, I mean, that's that's a tension point. And so what sorts of things revealed itself in the conversations that you had with people? Yeah, there was definitely um, 
concern about using the term evangelical in both countries and whether they should use a different term because they felt like even evangelical the term had sort of been um usurped or whatever the word is uh by american evangelicals at least in a stereotype that evangelicals are also trump supporting uh politically conservative um you know uh, uh types of people who uh the, the Canadian and the British evangelicals constantly were trying to distinguish themselves from that stereotype that went with uh, the nationalism and the conservatism, political conservatism that they saw in the U.S. And of course, that's a stereotype, too, because as you suggested, um, there's a lot of similarities between evangelicals across uh, the 49th parallel and across the Atlantic. And um, there's a lot of evangelicals in the U.S. who are also concerned about that stereotype and the way it's taking over what the understanding of what evangelicalism is. Sure. And this is where data is friendly. So you've got this, you know, the qualitative. But when you try to quantify the qualitative, um, obviously you saw a trend. I mean, anecdotally, uh, though, I can see the broad sweeps of what you're kind of describing in these these two different streams of evangelicalism uh, where I live in uh, Eastern Canada, there are a fair amount of people who would self-disclose as evangelical and who also are at least politically conservative, whether or not, I mean, they can't vote for Trump because they're not American, uh, but they do have a lot of affinity for several of the things that might be almost caricatured from American evangelicalism. So it's it's certainly not like a, a clean cut issue across the board or across the border, but uh, you're saying that by and large, they there is this desire to kind of distinguish uh, from whatever is perceived kind of globally as the mass media spotlight that seems to be landing upon this brand of evangelicalism in the U.S. right now. Is that fair? Yeah. So in Canada, the U.S., uh, Canada and Britain, they they worked hard to um, show themselves as uh, not politically conservative, concerned about a variety of issues, not just um, issues related to, say, sexuality, uh, abortion, or um, premarital sex, or whatever else. Um, and uh, they, they, they worked hard to uh, be ironic, um, welcoming of diverse kinds of people, uh, not brash, not um, fundamentalist, whatever the box is, that is stereotypically true of the U.S. They worked hard to distinguish themselves fr from that. So in general, um, what we find in Canada and Britain is that a political identity and a religious identity is uh, are separate identities. They're not as merged as they are in the U.S. And so it's hard to predict how a evangelical in Britain and Canada would vote simply because they're an evangelical. So in that sense, it's much more diverse. Uh, but there's also that assumption that uh, you can't predict one from the other or that they don't inform each other, even among interviews. Ooh, that's that's a nut to crack. That's fascinating. Um, okay, well, let's put a pin in that. Maybe we'll circle back. What what, uh, what were some other major findings that you had as we were having these conversations? Yeah, so the main argument of the book is that, well, I ex when I went into this project, I expected to find... Uh, an increased individualism among evangelicals uh, as as they moved to society. And so the influences around them were increasingly uh, idiosyncratic, um, sporadic, unpredictable, and 
and the, the effect was basically an increased individualism, but people were all doing their own thing, right? Sort of the judges, 21, everybody did was right in their own eyes. Um, but that's not what I found. What I did find was that they were all influenced by a fairly coherent, dominant cultural narrative that was shaping all of them in or influencing them in similar directions. And so if I saw movement away from either orthodoxy or orthopraxy, orthopraxy being, um, you know, behaving in orthodox ways, if you like, um, that would tend to be in the same direction because of the strength of this current uh, that we talked about. So the influence of West, this Western cultural uh, zeitgeist that I call in the book is much bigger than the three countries we're talking about right now and uh, is, is even pervasive in non-Western countries. Uh, in the book, I characterize the fundamental move and push of, of Western society as a move from an external locus of authority. That is, our authority is located in external parents, um, churches, government, whatever it is. Um, and they basically, uh, I basically absorb what the larger culture of these external sources uh, tell me I should believe and largely believe it or do. And that move from external locus authority is drifting over time toward an internal locus of authority where I decide I am my own authority. I decide what is right for me. I follow my own heart. And those who follow external authorities, including religion, are suspect. They probably are a bunch of conformists who haven't really learned to think uh, for themselves. So the argument is that this is actually what society is moving us toward it is not that we just became more you know individualistic in our personal thinking it's a move toward the right thing to do is to follow your heart and decide for yourself uh, what you should do and be yeah so that's would you say that that's the the main thing that you're noticing in the, in the kind of like not even the western trend necessarily but almost kind of the modern uh trend or are there other kind of like are there other primary factors or are there other secondary th factors that you're seeing that are kind of along the same lines yeah it's a great question so the the argument of the book is that this is the foundational change that i tried so. to capture in this one idea of a continuum between an external locus of authority and an internal locus of authority and that people are moving toward the internal, but there are different places along that continuum, even if generally the movements toward the internal locus of authority. Um, but of course, there's all kinds of effects of this major change, this foundational change, and that includes all kinds of changes to uh, beliefs, including evangelical beliefs, and, in, and, and including evangelical practices. I even argue in the book that it's affecting the way we structure uh, denominations and churches. So the effects are broad. Uh, I talk also in the book about uh, the effect of the struggle to transmit our faith to our children or to the next generation um, and the ways in which this internal locus of authority is not helpful in uh, allowing us to uh, move from one to the other. Yeah. Okay. Well, let's, let's hit that. Uh, maybe start at the end in some respects, or maybe one of the last points that you make, because I, I did write this one down and it, uh, maybe because it hits me where I live a little bit too much, but uh, page, <laughs> one page 134, uh, it's easier uh, for parents and clergy to transmit faith in a God that is objective and external. 
one that is not based on personal experience. After all, they too are external authorities. An internal, imminent God must be discovered for one's self and could be found only within. That is a hard thing to pass on to one's children. Uh, yeah, that is a, a massively difficult thing, especially when you when you put it down like that. And yet, um, it, so that is framed problematically, uh, as in this is framed, this is to show you that it is a problem. And yet, it's completely in line with what we hear. I mean, gentle listener, I don't know where what church you go to or if you go to any church at all. Uh, welcome. Uh, but yeah, if you're like if you're in an evangelical setting, I think this is. I was at a, a recently a parent conference, and one of the things that was talked about at the end of it was how um, children need to kind of discover God for themselves. Like they need to experience God. Um, which is completely like that just checks every box that I kind of frankly innately believe and have kind of been told, but it, it is a completely un, uh, you, you can't control that in any way, uh, which is, I mean, you wouldn't say, I mean, I, I don't know what you would say, but I can't imagine that you would say, well, you should be able to control, uh, somebody's salvation story or how they find God, right? Like, uh, and yet, so we will say, no, well, that's not the case, but to know that it, it, it feels like it's completely subjective. It's completely in the hands of, of the child is a, is a terrifying thing when you really think about it. Cause you're just like, oh, I, how do I, how do I pass this on? Because it seems as though, I mean, if you care about the church, and I don't mean any particular church, but just sort of like the, the church of Jesus Christ, that's kind of founded on ancient historic teachings and models, uh, evangelism, as you point out in the book is on just like the, a steep decline, especially in, in the, the modern West at the very least. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so the only, the only way to kind of maintain any kind of status quo is to have our children pick up the mantle as they go along or, you know, flip the script on evangelism. I'm not sure, but at the very least we'll say, well, Hey, let's keep it within our families. I'm a four guy. Maybe my son will be a four guy too, right? Let's keep the brand alive. But if we can't even pass on brand recognition to our, to our kids and we can't, if we don't have anything to do with that, um, I guess, doctor, uh, what's the remedy? (laughs) That's a great question. Uh, the, the point of that quote that you uh, read was that, um, you know, the Bible says, chain up a child in the way you shall go, Proverbs. And, you know, when he is old, he will not depart from it. Um, that assumes, I think, that uh, the rest of the culture, at least your community, is supportive of what you're trying to inculcate in your kids. Um, but what I'm trying to say in the book is that that's not the case. The, the uh, culture is suggesting to the kid that, she or he has to decide for his or her, her, herself. And that really is up to them. And that if they're just buying their parental models, they're they're shirking on their responsibility to become a fully self-defined adult. Um, So that does make it tricky. Um, But the good news for parents is that kids actually do not and never have created a self ex nihilo, right? They, They don't just draw stuff out of the sky. So, uh, what they do do is they draw things from influences around them. And those include parents and other caring adults. And it also includes 
you know, Instagram and Twitter and, you know, whatever else they're, uh, YouTube and whatever else they're paying attention to. So our task as adults, if we're interested in faith transmission, would be to communicate to our kids a caring, loving, warm relationship that will last past their teenage years and their maybe somewhat rebellious young adulthood. And that uh, if we can successfully do that, maintain this warm, caring, stable, supportive relationship over time, the research suggests that they're much more likely to align with our faith uh, as before, uh, as opposed to someone who has a strained relationship with their parents. But also key is, as you suggest, experiences. Uh, they need to experience God on their on their own, and we can groom such experiences not only in things like youth group, but also in mission trips and a variety of things like that, where they are likely to experience God. We cannot make that happen, but we can try to set it up. And uh, so we need to create space where there's there's opportunities for these things. Uh, one of my favorite authors, Christian Smith, says what we need to do, He's not, but he's suggesting this is what Christian parents do um, or other religious parents do. Uh, they take their kids deep into the woods while they're sleeping in the back of the car. And then they uh, wake them up in the back and say, we can either go for a walk in the woods or we could drive another three hours back and go to the art museum, you know, in town. Um, so you're trying to set up opportunities where it works well for them uh, to embrace your faith. And that is, key to that is maintaining warm relationship relationships uh, across generations, not only with parents, but also with other adults uh, that they hopefully will learn to respect. I guess I've seen that research quite a bit about uh, uh, faith transmission for young people if they have a, a relationship with somebody who happens to not be their immediate parents, uh, that yeah. helps them make a huge bridge when they move it into the young adult world. I mean, you mentioned the idea that the external the kind of the current that you're describing is definitely telling not just our kids, but us, uh, that mm -hmm. everything that we have not chosen is a, is a shackle. So if you don't, if you don't voluntarily walk into it, it is, it is a chain essentially. So everything has to be by your own kind of, uh, not even just consent, but, but, but kind of informed choice, if you will. Um, mm. and also like every, <laughs> every might be extreme. Uh, the, the plot of most, uh, children's fiction is how the adults around them have done it wrong. Mm -hmm. Uh, but contrary to all external authorities, the kids will know probably what the right thing to do is. Uh, and that's not brand new. Uh, you know, the, uh, what was the, what was the one, the, the kids, the two, the two boys that were hardy boys and stuff like that. Like this, this is not brand new, but yeah. it is, it is pervasive. It's hard to find uh, a model in, in fiction today uh, where people are imbibing external authority and or older people's wisdom as the thing that they should defer to. Um, and you kind of hint at this in a few different places throughout the book and you kind of, you know, that external versus in, internal kind of thing. Um, and I already mentioned the idea of, of uh, evangelism being a bit of a problem in how people mm -hmm. are willing to do it. Can you, can you talk a little bit about why people feel so, it seems like they feel so reticent to 
I mean, to use the word evangelize, kind of what we really mean is not just share good news with people, but in effect, try to influence somebody to make a decision to become something uh, like a Christian, for example, uh, that they are not currently self-identifying as. Why is that so kind of a, a problematic for us today? Yeah. So if we, if the internal locus of authority, the argument is that I am on a personal journey to find my own authentic self. And that because I am unique, uh, I'm an original, I have to really find that myself. Um, I have to follow my own heart. And as you suggest, uh, you know, fiction, children's fiction, Disney, I mean, since at least The Little Mermaid, <laughs> Um, the Disney movies have all been uh, sort of this, I have to find my own way. And there are all these external authorities out there, uh, which are blocking my progress toward finding my true self. And um, so as an external person, you trying to influence who they are, particularly if it's against their own heart or their own sense of their own identity, um, are a roadblock. You are keeping them from reaching their destiny of finding their authentic self. And so therefore you're an obstacle. You are a impediment. And that of course is not something we should do to uh, young impressionable lives. We should just allow them to find themselves to float calmly around the pond and assume that the influences that they have are somehow neutral, which of course is ridiculous. That's the kind of the point of the book is that the influences around them, if you're not influencing them, I can be, I can assure you that there's influences around them that are clearly pulling them in a certain direction. It's a river. It's not a pond. Um, so, but also, uh, the added impact, it's not like just telling them uh, the problem with evangelism. It's not just like telling them that, uh, you know, they should change a brand of toothpaste that Colgate is better than Crest or something like that. This is about dealing with a fundamental idea of their identity. And this is not something that is related to, you know, something that we can establish as objective, like, you know, science or something. Um, so, and because everybody's religion is completely up to them and how they express it is part of this individual quest, um, then how our efforts to try to influence something like that is considered to be especially uh, intrusive and uh, greater than other kinds of efforts to influence other people, because that really is subjective and completely up to however they find their own personal wholeness. Mm. But it's so, it's so challenging because it's informing. I mean, I guess there's a fine line between informing people and enforcing uh, upon people because I mean, merely letting somebody know that they have an option surely it cannot be viewed the same way as telling them that they absolutely must choose that that option um yeah that's it's a it's a bizarre thing i mean one of the things that i wrote down for your book um on page 35 says uh like god the authentic self is pre-existent i'd like mm. to get that on a bumper sticker um and it is this it is a strange it's funny like one set of beliefs you end up viewing them through another set of beliefs and so it's always kind of hard for me at the very least to try to understand which set of glasses I'm putting on first and what's actually at the core of what I'm looking at. Um, because I think this conversation, 
the idea of kind of self-discovery and 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 um you know this pre-existent self it rings untrue to me for the most part mm-hmm. uh, and yet at the same time there are aspects of it that that do ring true and it's hard to tell exactly why uh, i'm so kind of against this but i mean you cite uh, the work of charles taylor a number of times throughout the book and uh i think that his work uh, in particular the is kind of magnum opus a secular age is it's pretty pretty impressive um and it, it literally kind of like oppressive in some respects when you uh start to deal with some of the stuff that he's talking about but i mean you you definitely mentioned a number of times this subjective turn um this move towards authenticity uh how, how have how have how's that kind of like that overall scheme of how we see the world the idea that i am in some respects simultaneously responsible for creating myself and also at the same time responsible to discover myself i think that how like there's two sides of a coin there that at either instant we could be kind of affirming somebody's um affirming affirming that belief or sort of pushing back on that belief depending upon which side of the coin they're trying to shove up at that point in time but how are you seeing those kind of competing images in some respects making their way into how evangelicals think about themselves and think about the world around them yeah um so the i i would say that the process of the the telos the goal for the modern zeitgeist is to find the authentic self and that is largely a discovery um part of it the task of getting to the authentic self uh might might require um it's it's i think it's more of a finding than a creating um and but but the task of getting there uh would involve all kinds of effort on my part uh to clear obstacles and external authorities that are trying to tell me who i am instead of me finding my own self and moving toward finding this inner self based on the dictates of my heart. So uh, there is there is a sense where um, I'm responsible for uh, clearing the path to get there, uh, but um, I, I really am about discovering something that is preexistent. Now, if you talk to somebody and you say, well, you're talking about a preexistent self, they might not even understand that but if if we're going to make a logical flow of this whole thing then we have to discover something that is uncontaminated by our nurturing process by our socialization process and that thing um, has to be sort of this pre-existent it might be connected somewhat to our biology our nature uh, but it it, it exists sort of in this pure form that we have to refine in our in our um, individual quest Right. Define the authentic self. So that that's really the process as I see it. And so, I mean, interestingly, I mean, the the historic church would say, well, there is a natural you. So, like, there there that is in, in some respects a legitimate belief that you are born mm-hmm. in some way. Um, that is kind of you know it, it exists pre nurture. Um, now we would say that it's fallen, uh, and so uh, I think that's probably not super well received i'm guessing yeah. in, in how the and how most because there's kind of more of this like uh people don't like the word savage so i'm just quoting from 
I, I can't even remember who who has this kind of noble savage philosophy, but maybe it's Rousseau. But just this kind of the idea before that if you could find this like perfect, uncontaminated, as you mentioned, from from culture, uh, just the natural self, that it would be beautiful and kind of perfect just the way that it is. Uh, that definitely seems to still be lingering pretty pretty heavily with us. Um, okay, ecclesiology. You mentioned that uh, the, the way that uh, we're thinking about churches in general, the way that evangelicals are thinking about churches in general uh, is changing. What are some of the findings that you had in that respect? Right. So we're seeing a, a growth of um, uh, independent churches. One of the advantages of an independent church or these new networks or whatever we're going to call them uh, is that they don't have the baggage of a institutional authority over time. And they don't also have the baggage of some of the scandals that have happened within that denomination or institution. So that is somewhat good for attracting, you know, uh, people who have an internal locus of authority. But a lot of them lean toward the charismatic side as well, and some of them even prosperity gospelish. In which case, that allows people to um, experience something that they continue consider very real but very personal and so in that way it really resonates with a religion of the heart this idea that i need to listen to my heart and if it feels right uh internally then it must be right so um those kind of things dovetail a certain degree together is what i suggest in the book there's obviously other things besides the internal locus of authority that's driving some of those things or the modern zeitgeist um uh, you know, uh, sometimes uh, denominational structures are not as efficient as some of the new networks are as far as, you know, um, they create this hierarchy and, it, it, you know, you got to pay for that thing and it's not as easy to uh, reproduce as some of the other ways of operating. But uh, the point is, there seems to be a bit of a, a synergy or a, um, a a good fit between uh, this, this the tendency of culture and some of these more charismatic networky uh, kinds of uh, uh, religious groups. Okay, so you wouldn't say then that the primary, one of the primary causes is in fact kind of an allergy to hierarchy? Because um, that would have been my suspicion if you said like, hey, mm -hmm. try to predict why. I would say, like, oh, because people hate the idea of somebody being three inches higher than you. Uh, uh, so like we're kind of a, one of the other things is just this radical egalitarianism yeah. that is ironically not emanating. It doesn't feel like, although People will argue differently, but it doesn't feel like it's emanating from the church. It feels like at one point in time, maybe it had its roots in the church. I think that uh, Taylor makes this argument himself that it's like there were all these kind of things that became they were they were part of kind of a Christian ethos, but they have become mainstream now, and it's, they're so disconnected uh, that we can't even see where they came from. And this this idea that nobody ought to be elevated uh, right. responsibility wise over anybody else, uh, which I think. You can look at that in terms of denominational structure. We can also look at that like just inter-church structure so uh, that anybody could – it's it's laughable, the idea that there is such a thing as um, church discipline at this point in time. I don't know. There's a lot yeah. of things – a lot of things that were coming on uh, a few months ago uh, in uh, a large evangelical denomination to our south um, where there was a lot of people who – uh, we're getting caught for a lot of things. And there was a lot of words being thrown back and forth. And one of the things that kind of kept coming out was, you know, why are these people who are speaking inappropriately not being censured by their churches? Why are they not being put on church discipline? And I'm just like, man, I feel like the cat is out of the bag on that. Like there's what, what would it look like at this point in time to have 
something like that happen when you could merely just go to another church down the road and and plug in like there's no mm-hmm. there is no accountability as far as that goes anyway, that's a bit of a micro rant but I, if, if you and that's where i'm glad there's people like you who are doing actual actual work to look at what's actually the kind of the the, the causes behind these things because sometimes the things that we guess our hypotheses don't always bear out i guess in the uh, in the long run well i think I, just on that mark i think i'd agree with you that uh notions of hierarchy are not popular it goes well with the notion of external authorities rejecting external authority authorities for sure and uh so that would be that would be a piece of it as well and um, also those religious groups that tend to do well with the technology is also pretty attractive uh, particularly those who have a good online presence and uh, a lot of, you know, bigger churches or big conferences that are um, that are run, you know, can out present uh, anybody who is, you know, running around with a video camera in church, um, you know, and uh, so that, that 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 can be attractive as well, because first impressions uh, are key and most people's first impressions are online, right, of any religious group. You kind of gave the impression in the book that uh, people are almost, at least, so again, primarily focusing on evangelicals, self-described evangelicals in Canada and the UK or in Britain. Um, Many of them are almost embarrassed. Uh, I don't know if they would go ahead and say those words, but I mean, maybe some of them did. They're almost embarrassed at being known by that label. Uh, and partially you're saying that it's because of their wanting to be disassociated with another group of evangelicals from the US, but mm-hmm. there's also other other things at play, right? So some of them don't want to be associated with some of the beliefs, some of the the orthodoxies of whatever this kind of loosely affiliated evangelical church is. Uh, and some of them don't want to be uh, associated with the practices or the orthopraxies of, of this kind of conglomerate of churches. So they, I mean, a lot of them just leave. Like, obviously we're in some respects, if the data is what it seems to be kind of hemorrhaging people mm-hmm. in a lot of these contexts. So a lot of them are just like, wow, I mean, I, I'm just out. Uh, some of them have just kind of deconstructed from any kind of Christian faith whatsoever. Some of them have just said, Hey, there's other Christian traditions that I can go ahead and over and go over to. But for those who are still in it and yet don't like it, <laughs> Or still in it, but like kind of want to um want to help change it from within in some respects might be the case. What are the kinds of things that you most often hear as kind of pain points um from like what's the current lay of the land for them? Right. So absolutely in the book, uh there are two key areas that um evangelicals at least try to not lead with right they, they try to keep it kind of a little more quiet um and and are are and recognize them as areas of tension and sometimes are embarrassed about uh those positions one would be sort of exclusive beliefs where the idea is that this understanding uh or christian view is correct and everybody else is wrong and particularly those that are um not only you're wrong you're going to hell because of this uh this wrongness um, so those exclusive beliefs are not popular in the general society, as you can guess. And um, the other side would be uh, conservative ethics, particularly sexual uh, regulated ethics, uh, where um, people who are unaffirming of different uh, identities or sexual practices 
uh, would be uh, just haters, right? They, they would be, that would be, that's extremely unpopular. So evangelical churches are trying not to lead with that. And they're trying not, they're trying their best to communicate orthodoxy in as gentle a way as possible so as not to offend. Are they trying to communicate orthodoxy or are they trying to hold the, the, the views privately while not communicating those views? Yeah, good question. So there'd be some of both for sure. Um, I talked to uh, pastors and priests who would say, you know, unless we talk about this area that Christ talked about, um, you know, we're not we're doing a disservice to the church because it's actually in the word, you know, it's and Jesus talked about it himself. So we, we need to talk about it. We just got to do it in as in as sensitive a way as possible. Um, there would be other people who are uh, not talking about it at all just because it's so controversial and they prefer not to talk about it. So I hear often, um, I heard often in the interviews, uh, people saying like, well, what we do is we introduce people to Christ. We try to get them converted as evangelicals say, and then we let the Holy Spirit do the convicting as far as lifestyle uh, issues or belief issues go. And so that sort of gives them out from talking about issues that are, um, uh, cost tension. Yeah. I always wonder in those scenarios what they mean by that. So like, uh, the Holy Spirit giving, uh, so like, do, do they, do they mean like a literal kind of direct communication, um, between those two individuals, which again, kind of makes it very, it leads into this very individualistic idea that it's me and yeah. me and Jesus kind of thing, or do they mean, once they have met Jesus, you know, through the local church in some respects, uh, then we will introduce them to a series of teachings and an opportunity to kind of walk them through the texts of the scripture, which we claim is our primary source for all things. Um, mm -hmm. Or, you know, so, or yeah, I just, yeah. I'm always confused as to what the next step is in that equation. You're, you're absolutely right to be confused, Mark, because I, I definitely saw both. So in some cases, it was, it sounded very much like an internal locus of authority idea where you're your own inner guide, uh, your heart tells you what to do. Uh, the Holy Spirit kind of plays this inner guide that would be hard to distinguish from your own gut, you know what I mean, uh, for a lot of people. And so they really do leave it to this direct connection uh, between a bunch of churches, uh, especially I would say probably the, the network churches and the charismatic leading churches, um, they, they really do leave it to the spirit and they avoid talking about that. So uh, the question we have to think about is if we ignore the topic, are we really allowing people to choose freely uh, what they believe? And the answer, of course, is I don't think so because the general culture is not neutral, right? right? So we get back to that concern. There are others who are exactly, as you say, who would say, well, we're going to pull them in, show them fellowship, show them love, show them compassion, show them acceptance, and get them connected with uh, a relationship with Christ. And then we'll introduce some of the more specifics of doctrinal orthodoxy or uh, orthopraxy that our tradition has held to. We used to call that the bait and switch back in the day. Uh, <laughs> uh, it's, it's, you know, it's funny though. So like, it, it is so this inner guide, this kind of, you know, this, this gentle whispered voice, 
It's mm-hmm. uh, it's so easy for us to when you're when you kind of list it in, in the ways that we've listing it, we, we can see all of the problems with that. Like it's not hard to see all the problems with that. And yet, just this morning, I was listening to one of my favorite history podcasts, and they were talking about a Quaker from the 17th century by the name of Benjamin Lay, and how this Quaker was instrumental in helping. Uh, they call it, they called him the first abolitionist, which is not true, but he was kind of one of the first. Um, wackadoo do enormously kind of uh large uh kind of almost like um, performance art kind of things to try to change people's minds and hearts about what slavery was actually doing to the specifically what kind of chattel slavery was doing to the kind of people that were you know created in god's own image and and he wasn't he was by all intents and purposes, at least as he, he would have become enfolded into what we would know as the evangelical church. And the truth is, is that he would have, he was reading the same scriptures that the other people were reading, but there was a, a, a was a voice. Like he, he would, he would say that like, there was this internal experience as yeah. would, as would John Wesley. I mean, hello. Uh, the, you know, there, there is, yeah. there are all of these, uh, we are children of the people who have used the exact same language that we're just talking about to yeah. great effect. It's had enormous both social and religious and spiritual ramifications, but embedded in all of it was this Trojan horse, which we didn't necessarily see coming, right? It's always the wheat and the tares. It's always these two things that are kind of growing up at the same time. And it's like, we use the tool that's in our hands because we, we feel like it's the one that's going to have the greatest impact for good. And then later on, we realize that it was also creating an opportunity for exploitation or something to that effect later on. Um, and, yeah. and that's the, my major, I mean, my, I'm hoping the next few minutes here, you'll help me feel less hopeless. Um, but that is the, cause we, we do, I do want to kind of get to some kind of like, Hey, there is hope here, but I, I, I do have to say it is a bleak picture in some respects where we're left, where it feels like, uh, I think Taylor calls it this bind of modernity, which is mm-hmm. that really once we become aware of the fact that we are kind of like marooned on this Island of subjectivity and we, we, have only ourselves to blame because we are our own gods in some respects we're we're stuck because nobody i know myself included feels comfortable saying well i will then abdicate some of my own responsibility i will purposefully bind myself and blind myself to just follow another institution like i will i will i will do it nobody i know feels like they can do that. They're always going to be sitting at the seat of subjectivity. They're always going to be in, a, in some respects opting in. They'll opt in to say, I'll, I will follow this. I'll follow until they come up to a point where they'll realize that there's something in it that is not jiving with the way that they see the world. And then they're going to have to go, Ooh, I don't, then immediately you just, you're, you become self-aware of the fact that you're sitting in judgment over the situation. Mm-hmm. Um, it's tough. And we want to say it's Jesus in the Bible, but even biblical criticism and, and um, it has made it such that even people I know who are like the most kind of staunch, uh, almost fundamentalists in some respects when it comes to the Bible still employ some of the tools of biblical criticism, whether they realize it or not. Like, again, I said, the cat's out of the bag, maybe the genie's out of the bottle. Like it feels like 
in some respects, there's kind of no going back uh, yeah. in this kind of modern subjectivist turn. But I'm confident that somebody like you will have at least one or two practical suggestions for us in terms of how we can face uh, this sort of monolith of subjectivity. <laughs> what a setup. <laughs> Great job, Mark. Uh, one, of the, one of the fun things about being a sociologist is you can say, here's the issue, but I don't have a cure, right? Um, and God bless this is what the data say. You know, yeah. you, you practitioners on the ground have to figure out how, the, how to make this fit, how to make this work. Um, but uh, let me let me uh, make a make a stab at it. Um, yes, uh, th there are lots of reasons to be pessimistic, Mark. We are stuck in this subjective quagmire, and it's not like we can move everybody en masse to an external locus of authority, even if that would be good. Um, sometimes that would be very debatable. <laughs> that would be good because we do want people to. Um, we we do want a degree of of critical viewing of our institutions uh, which have failed us and leadership have failed us uh, a lot of times so we don't want to necessarily grow carte blanche in the other direction either um, but here we are in this day and age and how do we best navigate it um, clearly one of the mo most difficult parts of this for the church would be to and i mean the christian church here but it would be true of other religious groups uh, would be uh, to understand the idea of lordship or even what God with the word means um, as far as uh, there is a authority that is bigger than you and that authority is something that actually requires your service and obedience. Uh, those are all very unpopular ideas uh, to a modern person. But I think what we can do is at least two things. One is we can get them to understand that they are being shaped by an influence that is bigger than them, and they have to choose how benevolent that influence is. Uh, the, uh, the benevolent influence I'm suggesting is the one that loves them, um, you know, uh, completely and uh, irrevocably and demonstrated uh, in Christ or they can choose a much less benevolent option where they are servitude to their own uh, desires or their servitude to other people's opinions of them or whatever else they mix together in the concoction of finding themselves. They are not actually finding themselves themselves. What they are doing is they're drawing externally from themselves influences relationally that are shaping them in all kinds of important ways. And they are bringing that together in, um, and they're trying to make a coherent self out of that, which is a really hard thing to do, especially when society is as multivocal and diverse as it is in its influences and what it's telling them. So that's one piece to get rid of this idea that you actually are a self-made man, uh, to go back to the old ways of thinking. The other one, of course, is that um, people still do, they are not self-made. They still do listen to warm relationships around them. They listen to, as we would say in Britain, um, our mates. And so that is powerfully influential. And what they believe and how they identify themselves, their identity is influenced and shaped by those warm, stable, caring relationships around them. 
Um, of course, there's also all kinds of influencers on the internet and other places that shape their ideas too. But we have a great opportunity to influence people's religious views and behaviors if we can be those kind of warm, stable, caring, I got your back and your best interests in mind kind of relational people um, to those around us. People really are looking for community. They might not be looking in the right place, but they still are looking for those kind of warm, stable relationships. Yeah, it's powerful. I mean, thank you. You did. You have lifted my spirits. Uh, <laughs> but, but yeah, the idea that, I mean, uh, there is an irony, uh, a, a way of kind of bridging those two things together is that having having a, a king like Jesus um, it is actually a bindable community. It actually is what can bring together people of different nationalities, different uh, socioeconomic brackets, uh, different genders, different ages. Um, it's under an act, having an actual king, like an actual ruler in, in your life, one that you can look to is is because uh, I mean our, our society is becoming increasingly multicultural and it is uh, in some respects we want to say that it's it's getting better it's a good thing but it's also in some respects it's also kind of splintering because we all kind of have there is no binding agent really in our in our world um, but it, it, within the church if things could go the way that we believe that they will go. Um, and if people would just kind of say, well, you know, I have all these preferences and I have all these ways of thinking, but at the end of the day, Jesus is King and I'm going to follow him and I'm his subject. Um, and I'm, I'm also his friend. Yes, he's a good King, uh, but nonetheless, he's also the King. Uh, and so we get, you know, both the revelation picture of Jesus, as well as the buddy Jesus picture of Jesus, maybe, uh, hanging out together, uh, in kind of a robust view. And then together that will help us uh, create an actual real community where people are able to kind of be because nobody seems to like hierarchy. Well, hey, there hierarchy happens. It is one hundred percent inevitable. But who is at the top of it would hopefully only be somebody who deserves to be there, like Jesus Christ. Uh, at least that's my uh, my take on that. So, uh, dude, so caught in the current. Uh, if you haven't uh, had a chance to check that out, it's available wherever you happen to get books. Uh, and then, uh, a doctor. Uh, I, and it's funny. I got this far into it. Raymer or Reamer? Rhymer, like someone who rhymes. Oh, you got, <laughs> I got more rhymes than the Bible's got Psalms. Uh, Dr. Rhymer. Okay. Wonderful. Uh, if people want to find out some more about uh, kind of what you're currently doing or what's kind of next on the pipeline, what's the easiest way to connect with you? Uh, that's a good question. I'm not a big social media guy, um, but uh, they can definitely send me, a, send me a line. I'm at Crandall University. Uh, here in Moncton, New Brunswick, and be delighted to hear from you. Uh, but the book Caught in the Current uh, is out this year and just out, in fact, the last couple of months. And it is by McGill Queens University Press. And uh, um, it does look at this uh, interesting situation of evangelicals outside the U.S., in particular Canada and, uh, and Britain. So I'd love to have you pick up a copy of that and let me know what you think. Yeah, it's an interesting read. Uh, really appreciated your time and your conversation today as well. We didn't even mention this. The fact, uh, one of the reasons that I was able to reach out to you is because you were very uh, generous in helping out with a project that is going to be coming out not too long from now uh, with some questions that were related to uh, uh, worship and 
the church. So look for uh, Dr. Reimer's name on uh, that coming out soon at worshipleaderresearch.com uh, in the coming coming days. I don't know exactly when this will go live. So sometime in the future or the past, hard to say, but it could also be in the current, which is, of course, a wonderful way of putting a period on this conversation. Again, Sam, thank you very much for your time today. Thank you, Mark. Enjoy, enjoy the conversation today.